um, keep your Bibles open, please. What a birthday treat to be able to share this passage with you. Um, It's the kind of passage we normally miss, but it is part of God's Word, so let's spend some time thinking about what it means. Let me pray for us as we begin. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Father in heaven, we thank you for the beautiful words of that song that we've sung. Thank you that you are a God of compassion and grace and mercy and kindness. Thank you that you are a God who provides what we need. And we pray that as we look at this passage now, we might see more both of who you are, but also what it means to live for you. Now, shape our understanding of you more in line with this passage as you've revealed yourself to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, I was listening recently to a provocative podcast, because that's the kind of thing I do sometimes, um, and it was outlining the way in which much of our contemporary church culture in the West is essentially, it describes it as creating a free market where you're able to attract people to your church by putting on a good show. Good music or PowerPoint, whatever it might be, then, hey, people will come to you. They will prefer you over other churches because you've put on a show. It was actually an, it was an interview about song, songs and hymns, the kind of things that we sing in church and how those things reflect our current culture. So, for example, the, the lack of laments that are being written at the moment. What do miserable Christians sing? Well, they talked about the lack of songs of eternity and heaven and our future hope. In centuries gone by, many of the songs that were sung would be about the reality of the future, a new heavens and a new earth, and the hope that we have. Because they were singing in a context of suffering. And yet, you see, as our standard of living in the West has increased, as we have got more and more and more comfortable, the songs that we sing have evolved to kind of mimic that, to reflect that. And of course, it's much more attractive to be able to invite someone to come to church on a Sunday and to hear messages week after week as to how Jesus will bring you fullness and completion and help you to live your best life now. And there is much truth in that. But actually, maybe it's better to be honest about the reality of the messiness and pain of life and how Jesus is still with us through it. So it's thinking about the way in which our current culture shapes the church and shapes the songs that we sing. And I was reflecting on this. It seems to be a kind of syncretism. Now, syncretism is a word that describes what happens when a gospel reaches a new area as it engages with a new culture, a new place. So you get this kind of amalgamation of different religions. Imagine the gospel spreads into a previously unreached area, entirely unreached, and comes into contact with all kinds of pre-existing beliefs in that area. Does the gospel remain as it is? What kind of language do you use to explain Jesus to a people who have never thought about sin or God before? How do you make it comprehensible? How do you make it appropriate to them, to those people in their context and their framework and their worldview? It's actually quite a complicated topic. But the danger can be the core gospel gets so changed and tweaked to communicate with these new people that you end up with a distorted view of God of who he is, of who we are. 
We change things in such a way that we actually end up changing the message. And it seems to me as the gospel has interacted with a sort of Western individualistic capitalism, well, what message are we left with? What gospel are we left with? Are we in danger of it being so distorted and airbrushed that it stops being the gospel? Are we in danger of simply looking to put on a show rather than actually the key core message about Jesus? And all in all, that means our passage for today is the kind of one we probably ought to try and skip by and ignore because there are a whole lot of problems in there. Maybe it would be better for us to pretend that it didn't exist. Do you see, for our Western, comfortable, cultural ears, it is not an easy passage. It is likely to be problematic in all kinds of ways. Let me be up front, and I reckon there are at least five problems with this passage for us. Okay, five things that we will need to wrestle with as we go through that won't sit well with our ears. The first one is there in verse 1. And that is that Satan rose up against Israel and incited David to do this census. That's a problem for various reasons. Firstly, because while our current culture doesn't believe in Satan, he is a laughable concept. But secondly as well, there's a parallel account in 2 Samuel 24, and it says that God incited David to do it. And so if you've got antagonistic friends who know how to use the internet... And they come and troll you and try and trip you up on things like this. And they point to passages. They say, look, the Bible contradicts itself. We can't trust it, can we? It's internally inconsistent, they say. And they do say that. So we'll need to deal with that problem. The second problem seems to be that why does it matter whether David takes a census or not? Is it that important? Is it something for God to get so uptight about in the first place? What is wrong with a census? We studied numbers a couple of years ago, and we saw all kinds of censuses going on there. Third problem is that God then punishes his own people, his own people, because of David's sin. And if he loves them, and if he's made a covenant with his people, to the tune of perhaps 70,000, then how does that work? How can God discipline and punish his own people? The fourth which links into that, is that he does so for David's actions. Is that fair? That doesn't sound right, does it? How can they be culpable for David's actions? How can that be fair? How does that work? And then the fifth one, and of course there are more, but the fifth one is that rather than following through with it, almost like an inconsistent parent, God stops and relents halfway through. It's as if he changes his mind. What kind of God would do that? What are we to make of this passage? As I say, there are five problems. I could probably give you five more, but we've got lunches to go home to. Before we just dive in, let me remind you again. We've we've said this before, but we must not recreate God in our image. We must not let our culture shape him into the kind of God we want him to be. It was the author, now Tim Keller, who said, if your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshipping an idealised version of yourself. 
If your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshipping an idealised version of yourself. Because you see, when we shrink him and when we domesticate him and when he turns into thinking and acting and being just like us, we do so at our peril. When we slide into thinking he's just here for our benefit and for our comfort and we are at the heart of everything, when we westernise our faith, in many ways, we lose biblical Christianity. Do you remember the context? I recognise I say this week by week, but it takes a while for us to get to grips with it. This is an account of God's people in the land. But it's written from after they have been exiled and then put back in the land again. And what the chronicler is doing, do you remember, is he is trying to give them the, the story of Israel's history, but with a message of hope to try and help them stop the exile happening ever again. Questions like, well, is God still faithful? Does his covenant still stand? Does he care about us? And of course, the people of God at this point know that there are very real consequences for their actions. If they walk out on God, he will discipline them for their actions. And so let's work our way through. I'm trying to hit some of these objections on the way past if i don't deal with them sufficiently which i won't um, i'd love to have a coffee with you milk and one sugar please um, and you can save me queuing up um, first point from verse one to seven is sin that is this figure of satan comes onto the scene um, and whilst he is often on the lips of jesus later in the bible actually only by name does he clearly appear three times in the old testament We only encounter Satan by name three times before Jesus. The first one is in the book of Job. We'll think about that shortly. The second one is in Zechariah 3. And then the third one is here. And the other two, he is is definitely and definitively the accuser. That's what the name means. In Job, he's allowed to accuse and then afflict Job. In Zechariah, he's allowed to accuse Joshua, the high priest. Here, he incites David to take a census. And you know, the passage doesn't actually tell us what is wrong with this census. Joab, from the beginning, is sure that it is wrong, verse 3. He was David's nephew. He's the commander of David's army. But censuses were things that God initiated for a variety of reasons in the Bible. As we said, in numbers, you see it to levy taxes, taxes um, in, in chapter 3. Um, he counts the size of his army in Numbers 26. And so something, maybe it was to do with counting workers. Although it talks about fighting men, it may not be to do with the fact that they were fighting. Something, perhaps he was counting people to see how many they have so they can build the temple in a bit. Some think that. But then as Joab is included, and he is cross with it, as as Levi is excluded, you get that in verse 6, then maybe the military purpose is the most likely thing. But we don't quite know for sure. If you're reading carefully, there are some questions, but there are some certainties too. Um, The first is that Joab, from the very beginning, knows it's wrong. Verse 3, he is concerned, but Joab replied, may the Lord multiply his troops a hundred times over. My Lord the king are then... Are they not all my Lord's subjects? Why does my Lord want to do this? Why should he bring guilt on Israel? And yet David outranks him, and so Joab agrees mostly. 
Do you remember we've said it time and again, David is held in very high esteem through Chronicles. God's promise to him as the Davidic king is really important. It really matters. It is something of a centerpiece to the book. It's a theme that goes right through. Um, we heard about that last uh, Sunday. The kids just heard about it with um, Lego figures um, a moment ago. David's faults are not airbrushed. Here he is clearly in the wrong. And Joab knows that. But he does the census. And then he draws the line, verse 6. But Joab did not include Levi and Benjamin in the numbering because the king's command was repulsive to him. Levi, presumably because they were not meant to be warriors. We don't quite know again with Benjamin. Um, Levi's were the, the priests and such like temple um, community. Benjamin, maybe it's because the tabernacle currently resided in Gibeon. Um, and so maybe Benjamin is to stay there. We don't quite know. But David gets his way. The results come back. And look at verse 5. There were 1,100,000 men who could handle a sword, including just over 40%, 470,000 in Judah. And while we may not explicitly and definitively know why God is angry or why Joab is reluctant, my take on it is that it's due to pride. It's about pride. David leading the people of God in his own abilities. Again, we've seen it as in previous weeks, he doesn't inquire of the Lord. This is a David thing. That seems to be an intermittent, habitual issue for David. Indeed, an issue for all of us. But David making his own plans, trusting in his own wisdom, leading in his own strength, doing it his way. And whenever the kings crack on with their own plans, doing it in their own strength, leading in their own wisdom, then things begin to look pretty bleak. There could be another reason as well, and that is simply the, the pride of t- counting his people as a testimony to his own greatness. Trusting not simply in his wisdom, but in his military prowess and strength and might. Um, again, we saw it a couple of weeks ago. David has a, has a canny leadership plan of outsourcing leaders around the kingdom, a regional leadership strategy, military men all around the place. But pride seems to be at the heart of it. Which then, of course, makes this episode really applicable for us for the people of God at any time, really, because all of us, maybe particularly those in leadership, have the temptation to do things in our own strength or to find security in numbers, to not inquire of the Lord. It's great for our humility on a bank holiday weekend when the chairs are all empty because everyone's away. But we can easily find strength in numbers in an unhelpful way. It can bring pride. From Genesis 3, it's always been clear that God's people want to be like God. We want to do things that is his job to do, to be in the position of God in our own little lives. And yet that, that pattern continues. We, we were not meant to trust in our own strength. But we do. We were meant to trust in him. And it's why so often through the scriptures you get the smallest and the, the littlest and the least impressive winning the battles. God using them. That's why in Israel at the beginning they were so small, the least likely to succeed and to make it. And yet God lavishes his love on, on them. 
And so it says we look to him and we inquire of him and we remember he is the one in charge. It is about him that we live as we were meant to. And so there David is, busy counting his troops, trusting in his own might. And that doesn't work. What do we make of the idea that Satan incited David to do it, though, in verse 1? In Samuel, again, we said it's God who did it. What does that mean? Maybe the, the example of Job is a helpful one for us as we kind of wrestle with this idea. Um, the model in Job is that, do you remember, throughout the book, famously, God is totally in charge. God is sovereign, and yet he allows Satan this freedom, not complete autonomy, but a level of autonomy, to engage with Job, to accuse Job, to tempt Job, to inflict Job with suffering. And yet God is still sovereign. He is still in charge. And so as one writer puts it, commenting on, on this verse here, behind and above the spiritual agent of evil, God reigns. God reigns. And there's a level of mystery, and there will be questions about this, but the Bible is consistent. It's, it's not as if we are in a Star Wars universe with two equal and opposite powers at work. No, God is in charge. This happens under his sovereignty. Satan is on a leash and God holds the end of that leash. And that will bubble up questions for us. And there'll be tensions in the Bible to hold there, and the how and the why and the what. But we can trust that God is totally sovereign, and yet he can, he can even use someone like Satan for his plans and purposes. Of course, you see that primarily at the cross. And so if in 1 to 7 you see something of the foundation for the passage, you see something of this idea of, of sin, in verse 8 we get a sorry. When we get it wrong, with Adam and Eve, we are a people who love to point the finger. And we point it elsewhere, and we make excuses, and we seek to exonerate ourselves. Look at my mitigating circumstances, Lord. Look at the way that I've been brought up. Look at the, the things around me. Look at the situation that you've put me in. Look at them. It's their fault. They did it. They made me do it. It is profoundly human not only to err, but also to try and attempt to avoid the blame. But David doesn't do that. And that is refreshing. He could perhaps legitimately have said, ha, Satan made me do it. Neither here in verse 8 nor later on in verse 17. He simply repents. He simply says, that is my fault. That was me. I have sinned. Verse 8, then David said to God, I have sinned greatly by doing this. Now I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I have done a very foolish thing. And it sounds so simple, doesn't it? But I want to put it to you that learning to repent is an overlooked but key daily discipline for us. The importance of saying sorry to God and to others, but primarily to God, is a foundational part of living the Christian life. It's part of the daily prayer taught by Jesus. 
Saying sorry to God really matters. But it's something that is profoundly unnatural for us as humans. But it ought to be something we do far more often than we do. David here, in a sense, is a model for us of what happens when we get it wrong. He simply says sorry. He doesn't point the finger. He doesn't raise mitigating circumstances. He doesn't put the blame elsewhere. He simply says, I have sinned greatly by doing this. Martin Luther um, famously started the Reformation by nailing his 95 theses to the door of Wittenberg Cathedral. And the first of them said this, Our Lord and Master Jesus Christ willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. And it sounds a bit miserable. But actually he's getting at the idea that repentance is the way that we make progress in our Christian life. Again and again and again, each and every day. Not to try and keep God happy, not to try and make him continue to bless us or answer our prayers or to sort of twist his arm behind his back and give us what we want, but primarily because of the consequences of what we've done, our sin as it relates to him. Because primarily it's a relational thing. And so we say sorry because it has hurt God, because it has offended him. We'll have the opportunity in a moment to do this after I've finished preaching and I'll lead us in prayer for that. We've done it already this morning, but we'll do it again in light of this passage. To, to with David, recognise before God, without excuse, without seeking to shift the blame, that naturally, verse 8, we have been sinful, we are guilty, we are foolish. And so David says, sorry, But as there often are, there are still consequences for his actions. There are still consequences because of his sin. There is an outworking for his disobedience. And so 9 to 15, 15, we see suffering. It it reads to me like like a parent kneeling down with a toddler. And God's saying to David, okay, you've got this wrong. Now you get to pick your punishment. What, what do you choose? Is it three years of famine? Is it three months of enemy, enemy victory? Or is it three days of plague from the Lord? And, and tellingly, he, he chooses three days from God. Why? Well, verse 13, David said to Gad, his seer, he says, I'm in deep distress. Let me fall into the hands of the Lord for his mercy. His mercy is very great. Perhaps we see something of the enormity of David's sin because 70,000 people still die. And whether that number is exact or it's rounded or even if it's figurative, we're not quite sure. But it is striking that the punishment fits the crime because there was David proudly counting his men. And so now the Lord counts his men and reduces the number. And David is a representative for his people. He is the head. He is the leader. And just as Adam did for us, and indeed Jesus does for us, so the actions of one become the actions of many. The sin of the shepherd here has implications for everyone. All those whom he represents. 
And I know that in our individualistic world, that kind of grates against us. It sits strangely, that idea of representative headship. Hang on, it's not, it's not fair. That's not fair on those who died because of the sin of David. But it's a common theme through the scriptures. It's something that we'll need to get to grips with and we'll need to understand and we'll need to own in some sense. It's, you see it through the scriptures, you see it in daily life as well. The decisions that our politicians make for, for good or ill affect us all. And of course, presumably, we're happy to be represented by Jesus. We don't deserve his grace. We don't deserve his righteousness, his forgiveness, his mercy, his kindness. We don't earn it, but as he dies, so we all die. And as he is raised again, so we will be raised again. David represents his people and the, the things that he gets wrong have implications for many. There's perhaps a bigger concern as well, though. I told you there were problems with this passage, and that is in verse 15. And this is the idea that God repents or relents from what he's doing. But as the angel was doing so, the Lord saw it and relented concerning the disaster and said to the angel, who was destroying the people, enough. Stop the plague. Withdraw your hands. What are we to make of that? What are we to make of the idea that God changes his mind? Or at least seems to. Again, it's an idea that comes up again and again and again through the scriptures. It's something we'll need to wrestle with. Um, God seems to often be changing his mind. He has one plan of action, and then he ends up doing something different. What's going on? How do we reconcile God's omniscience, he is all-knowing, with this more seemingly human response as he does something else? I want to say it's a complicated topic, and if, if you're interested, then send me an email or come and grab me afterwards, and I can point you in the direction of a couple of helpful papers. As in this example, though, God relents because of human repentance. And so it's, it's as if there's an implicit clause within his decree of judgment that seeks to draw repentance from his mediator, that, that shows his mercy when repentance comes. Now, sometimes God will swear by himself, and that is basically, it's going to happen. This is inevitable. There is no turning back. But then sometimes he says he will do something, and it's as if he wants to elicit a response from the leader as he says he will do it, whether it's David here or Moses or Abraham or elsewhere. It's as if he wants to encourage the mediator to stand in the gap between God and the people. He says, I'm going to do this. But there's kind of an implicit and question mark in there, encouraging the leader to come and to pray for his people. And again, it's a bit like parenting. And you're dealing with a toddler or you're dealing with bigger children and you say, look, I'm going to, I'm going to have to punish you for that. That was wrong. You know that was wrong. And you would punish them for it. And so as you tell them that, it's not just that you say, I'm going to punish you, but rather you're letting them know they need to say a big sorry. So it's not as if God changes his mind. It's not as if the parent changes their mind. But that as they threaten discipline, so you are seeking to incite from them repentance. 
as you warn them of anger and punishment, it acts as a catalyst to get them to repent. And so your kind of final action in one sense is contingent upon their response to that. What does that mean for us? It means we're toddlers. It means we're toddlers. It means that whilst God is sovereign and all-knowing, he's sovereign and all-knowing in such a way that he, he beautifully takes and uses our words and our prayers and our actions. Because of David's actions, the people deserved this because of God's righteousness, because sin matters. And yet because of the actions of David as the mediator, so the Lord says, enough. It means we have massive dignity and responsibility as people. It means that God uses us and weaves them into his sovereign purposes and plans. And there will be questions and there is a mystery there. And attention as we seek to hold different bits of scripture together. But the Lord pauses his judgment. And so David mediates for his people. And he shockingly at this point asks them, asks the Lord whether he might be a substitute himself for the place of his people. Our final verses for this morning, verse 16 to 19, substitution. David looked up and saw the angel of the Lord standing between heaven and earth with a drawn sword in his hand extended over Jerusalem. Then David and the elders, clothed in sackcloth, fell face down. David said to God, was it not I who ordered the fighting men to be counted? I, the shepherd, have sinned and done wrong. These are sheep, what have they done? Lord, my God, let your hand fall on me and my family. But do not let this plague remain on your people. Lord, punish me and my family for my sin. Don't punish my people. It wasn't their fault. We think, wow. And the Lord listens. And yet God is holy and righteous and good. And so he can't just ignore or forget sin. And so sin must still be accounted for. And there will be a substitution that happens. But not David or his family taking the place of substitute. No, rather what happens is there is a, a foundation for the temple laid. This is where the temple will be. Verse 18, then the angel of the Lord ordered Gad to tell David to go up and build an altar for the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruana the Jebusite. So David went up in obedience to the word that Gad had spoken in the name of the Lord. And that ends up being the temple. And God once again provides atonement for the sin of his people a way for them to be reconciled to him, a way for guilt and shame and wrongdoing and foolishness to be dealt with. And so it's a striking and glorious way for the, this little section to end in one sense. From David's sin and pride, we end up with a temple that for, for decades, for centuries, would serve the people of God, making it possible for them to know him. It's particularly glorious as we view it from this side of the cross. We've already seen as well that David has a model prayer of repentance for us in verse 8. But now here we come and see the way in which forgiveness comes. Because the Lord won't accept David dealing with his own sin. David and his family cannot be the one to absorb their guilt. 
God is too pure in his sight. David's sin is too much. Now the Lord must provide one who will deal with guilt. And for a time there will be there'll be blood of bulls and goats and doves and all kinds of animals and this costly treadmill of, of animal blood, of, of religion, month after month, year after year. And indeed that costliness is actually hinted at in verse 24 onto the next page. Um, he's trying to buy the land. But King David replied to Aruana, No, I insist on paying the full price. I will not take for the Lord what is yours or sacrifice a burnt offering that costs me nothing. This guy wants to give him the land. David said, No, it needs to cost me. Sin is costly. David seems to get that. And so his sacrifice, in a sense, must be costly. Of course, the problem is the cost to deal with our own sin is never something that we could afford. It's a price that the Lord will end up paying for us as his son pays our debt and writes it off entirely. Indeed, as he becomes the true sacrifice, the true high priest, the true temple, all in one, the one to whom all these things pointed towards and will be fulfilled. Which means you get this shocking passage in Hebrews. It says that the temple would be built, and it would. It says that sacrifices would be made, and they will. It says that high priests would serve, and they will. But it says essentially that ultimately it was kind of ineffective, in a sense. Let me read to you. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshippers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But, But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifice an offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. And by that we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. You see, there will be a temple built, and there will be sacrifices made, and atonement will be made, but in a sense they all pointed ahead. They pointed ahead to... To God taking on flesh and coming to die in the place of his people. To to be a true sacrifice for us and for our sin and us being like David in verse 8. You can't swap an animal for a person. We need a person to be our substitute. And so we have Christ. He is the costly sacrifice that we need to deal with our costly sin. And nothing else will do. Let me lead us in prayer. Father, it's in passages like this that we remember... that you are not made in our image, that you do things in a different way. 
that our sin is so extraordinarily abhorrent to you. That it really matters. And so we thank you for, thank you for the costly sacrifice of the Lord Jesus. Thank you that after this account a temple would be built. Thank you that he would come and be the true temple. Thank you that it's through him that atonement for sin is made. Thank you that you take away our guilt and our shame and our foolishness. Things that we do, things that we say, things that we think. Things that we don't do or say or think. Thank you for the Lord Jesus who comes to be the costly substitute for people like us. Help us please to treasure him more and more. Help us please to make that, that daily repentance a pattern for us. For us as individuals, for us as a church. That we would recognise afresh the the reality of our sin and how it relates to our relationship with you, how much it hurts you. And so that we might be a people who, who gladly repent because we know the assurance of your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.